The following For the City Church sermon is part of our summer sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising, entitled Under the Sun from the Book of Ecclesiastes. We hope you enjoy it. So we are about to jump into the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes, right? And so if you've been reading along, if you've been following along, like we're pretty much in the center of the book, right? And, and here's the thing, you're going to notice there's a different style or a different tone that, that Solomon or Kohalath has, has really started to, to pick up on. And, and it's, it's, it's proverbial, right? It's, it's like Proverbs. It's just boom, 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 boom. And it's way different than anything we've read clear up into these first six chapters. And, and really, I think what's going on here is, is, is as we grasp the overarching theme of Ecclesiastes, and, and essentially that is that life under the sun, right? Life in this temporal world, apart from God, escapes our control even though we desperately try to control all areas of our lives, it's, it's like vapor. We grab it, we think we've got it, and it's gone. The, the things of this world, no matter how good they might be, are not ultimate things. They can't fill the space that God has created in your heart for Him, right? And even though we continue to try, even if they do for a season, they can never hold the weight of eternity. And so over and over, we've been met with this this stunning reality that no matter what, no matter how hard we try, even if we try really hard, we're really pathetic in comparison to Solomon. Because this man had, quote unquote, it all, right? And so even if you're like, man, if I just had a little bit more money, he's like, we learned last week, I was like a 2.1 trillionaire if you were to equate that to today's standards. Would, would, would another trillion help you? Because it didn't help me right? Um, hey, well, what about, you know, we live in a very sex-crazed nation and world. Well, if I just had another person to be with, right, sexually, that would fulfill all my desires. He's like, well, I had 700 wives and, and I had 300 concubines and it, it never satisfied me. Would a thousand and one help? Yeah, probably not, right? And, and, oh, you just need a bigger house. Well, I, I had many houses. Uh, by the way, that's king. It's good to be king, Right? I'd throw parties, and they'd last for like a month, and we would like slaughter cattle, and, and we would just drain vats of wine, and people from all over the place came to see this thing. I'd build a house for God, right? But none of these things satisfied my soul. And you're like, oh, that squashes all my American dream hopes in an instant. If it does, praise God. Because it's sinking sand anyway, right? That, that's his point. So now we're at the middle of the book, and he, he's essentially saying, well, if that's true, and it's true, then how should we live? That's really the question. And here Solomon's going to give us some practical help. He's going to give us some practical proverbs to think over. And the key word in the section is better. So the, so the word better is really important, right? So you're going to see this phrase, better than. Right? For instance, I think, I think bacon is better than sausage. I like sausage, right? Okay, I never get the, yeah. Okay, I, okay, Penn State's better than Ohio State. Sorry, sorry, right? I only say that because I know you love Ohio State. I actually don't even care about Penn State, right? Like, I just said that because I knew it would get you, right? Like, uh, but, but we use this language all the time, right? Well, we're going to hear that as we, as we jump in. 
But, but I want you to notice, and, and by the way, if you're new, I didn't mention this, in your little pamphlet map thing, if you open it up, it's got two points. I hope you follow along, you can take some notes. But here's the first point. Facing the enigmatic realities of life is better than foolish escapism. Now, we've talked about this word enigmatic a lot, right? I think it's a great translation for the word hevel, right? Because it's, it's, it's a mystery. It's, I don't like the word meaningless because that's not actually what Solomon's saying throughout. He's just saying it's so hard to grasp. It's like vapor. It's like it's smoke. I can see it. There's some substance to it, but I can never grab it. As soon as I think I got it, it's gone. It's a mystery, right? So facing that that's reality in life is better than foolish escapism. So we're just going to kind of talk and, and work through it. We're going to read and talk, read the text and talk, because it really sets itself up that way. So look at verse 1. We're going to call it 1a. A good name, or let's say a good reputation, is better than precious ointment, uh, expensive perfume or cologne, right? Uh, what's, what's the point? He's saying that honor is better than luxury. I mean, it seems pretty straightforward, right? Uh, There's no point in smelling like the best colognes if every time your name comes up at a dinner table, someone rolls their eyes and the thought of the smell of maggots in summer trash comes to their mind. If you've smelled that, that's disgusting, right? There's there's no amount of cologne or perfume going to cover that stench up. That's what he's saying. You, you can get liposuction, right? You can stretch your face so it looks a little better, get a little tuck here, a little lift there. You can take some, some fat from your thighs and put it on your nose. And everybody might say how pretty you are, but your name, I mean, that's way more important because the rest is just going to fade away no matter how much you stretch it. And so he's saying it's really important that you grasp, boy, your reputation matters way more than the things you have. You know, a, a good reputation takes a lifetime to build. I mean, it really does. But it can be destroyed in an instant. It can be destroyed by someone else. But you know what? Most often it's, it's destroyed by one bad decision you've made. Think about Ravi Zacharias and J.I. Packer. These are two guys that come to my mind. Now, I don't get to judge that. I don't know all the things. We'll know one day in the courtroom of heaven. But if it's true about Ravi Zacharias, who I always thought, man, this man's going to finish well, and we've got this saint to look upon. It, it was mind-boggling when I heard the things start to come out. But then I think about J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer, and I can't go into all their stories. They, they couldn't be further apart in the way that they finished. Yet, all of them, they looked so good the whole way through. But how you finish absolutely matters. Small steps, they they lead to a great fall. Think about King David, right? King David didn't just wake up one morning in bed with Bathsheba. It was was a slow erosion of his morals, of his guide. He, He let a gaze go too far, way too far. And before he realized it, all these small steps led him into this moment. So you need to think about your reputation, not in the moment where it's going wrong, but way before that. And so he's saying a good name matters. Your reputation and your character, these are the things that you're known for. They're way more important than being fresh dressed like a million bucks. Seems pretty straightforward, right? I think that's what he's saying. All right, let's, let's move because we've got a lot here. We're going to cover the first 13 verses today, God willing. But look at 1b. 
The day of death is better than the day of birth. I put the is better in there because it makes sense within the context of the text. That's what he's saying. And, and you're like, wait, did you say that the day of death is better than the day of birth? Uh, yeah, I didn't, but, but Solomon did. What? It's strange. Did anybody hear that and say, eh, I got the first one, but this one's a little bit confusing? If not, I, I, I think it is. Death is better than birth? <laughs> we were out Thursday with some guys, and we were talking about this text, and everybody's like, what's that mean? I'm like, I don't really know. And not a lot of other people do. But I think as we read the text and we keep going, it'll make sense. I mean, I believe it by faith. He's not saying death is better than life. Don't, don't get that. That's not what he's saying, because the Bible would absolutely say that's not true. But, but here's the thing. What is he getting at? It's a head scratcher, right? Um, I think, let's look at it. One possibility is it, it could be very cynical and dark. And, and he's pretty cynical and dark up to this point, right? He could be saying, life is vanity. It is enigmatic. So just hang in there, because there's going to come a day when all the frustration will end and you'll die. He could be saying that. I don't think that is what he's saying, though. I think the second's a little more positive, right? And, and I'm going to just read a quote from a guy who said this. He said, death is the fulfillment of life, and fulfillment is better than potential. Right? right? Think about it in the scope of your whole life, right? When, when a child's born, um, what can we really say? Oh, look how cute he is, right? Like, and, and most ladies will always go and say, looks just like and it was someone mom dad I'm just like it's a baby right and 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 oh he, he looks so smart and look at the eyes I mean there's not a lot you can say about a child when it's born other than oh right that's all I feel but how about at the end of your life how about at the end of that baby's life let's say that baby lives for 70 years and and she has lived a very good life you might hear people say you know one thing about, let's say, Jill. She was so full of compassion. She was so kind. You know, one thing I, I loved about Jill is when I would sit down with Jill, there, it just never seemed like she was in a hurry to get out of that conversation. It was like I was the only person that existed in that moment. I loved how Jill gave me undivided attention, right? So, okay, there's, there's promise, there's, there's hope. And, and, and he's saying... Well, death in that day is better, right? Because there's so much more potential in the life. Could be that. You could argue one or the other. Uh, but, but I still, it's a little bit murky. So let's keep going. And let's see if we can maybe gain some more understanding in the text. How about let's take verses two through four next. And I think what you're going to see, the overarching theme is that mourning is better than feasting. <laughs> Strange right? Hey, who wants to come hang out with me while I cry all day and snot on your shoulder? Nobody? Nobody. Hey, who wants to come next week where we're going to have smoked brisket? It is going to be a blast and we're going to, I think we'll see some hands, right? But that's not what he says. Look, he says, it's better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, <laughs> right? Like, it's just strange. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Mirth means amusement, 
even at the expense of yourself. Like your whole life is crashing down and you're just getting drunk and you're hanging out at the bar and everything's burning and you're just like the, the little dude in the coffee shop. It's on fire and he's like, it's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine, right? That's what he's saying. It's all fine. It's not all fine. You're on fire. It's a problem and you won't recognize it. I mean, this is really what he's saying. But why is going to a funeral better than going to a feast? I think what, he, what he's really getting at. By the way, if you were not here week one, we said that Ecclesiastes at times very hard to understand. It is. And today's one of those days. It's very hard to understand. But why is it better to go to a funeral than a feast, Solomon? Well, because death has a lot more to teach us about life than a party. You know, most people at a party aren't contemplating the deeper things of life. They're just enjoying the moment. But hopefully when you're at a, at a funeral of someone you love, you start to think about what life's about. Or if you're laying on your deathbed, and you know it's knocking at your door now, you start to think about, really, what did I do with my life? Did I waste my life? Maybe you don't think that. Maybe you just numb it with more amusement, right? There's a book called America's Amusing Itself to Death. It couldn't be more true. If you just get the title, save your money. Because it's everything you think it is. Amusement, by the way, the word, if you break it down, is, is no thought. That's, that's really what it is. We just want to just no thought. Hey, my life's a wreck. Netflix. By the way, I like Netflix. I'm not picking on Netflix. But what I am saying, there is a time when you ought to put down the remote and recognize your life's a wreck, and it's not going to get better the more episodes you watch. You've got to recognize what's happening. It's time to learn. Better yet, it's time to change. And that's, I think that's what he's getting at. Life is precious. We, we've heard that through and through. Life is to be valued. It's never to be taken for granted. And, and depending on your history of life, this may be very hard for you to grasp. What, I'm, what I mean by that is this whole, this whole concept of death. Right? My wife and I, Jesse and I, have been married 20 years. Jesse comes from a young family, so she's not experienced much death in her family at all. Um, I come from a very old family. My dad was the youngest of seven. I was the youngest of the, my mom and dad's three, and I was a, oh, baby, right? Like, oh, we're pregnant? I mean, I don't want to say mistake, because for my mom it wasn't. That's another story for another day. But my dad was shocked, to say the least, right? Um, so we went to funerals like you guys go to like the movie theater. Uh, it was just constant because of those seven children, they were very serious about filling the earth, right? My one uncle had 12 kids. The other one had nine. It was a big family. Like we would play football on Thanksgiving and you could pick whether you wanted offense or defense. You didn't have to do both, right? Large family, right? So we went to funerals all the time. I just was so, I just thought everybody does this. And most of them happened in Rural Valley, which I was thankful for because there was this little place where they would actually make Coke with real syrup and stir it up. And it was like cherry Coke or chocolate, chocolate cherry Coke. And I was like, this is actually kind of cool. It's not kind of cool. As I grew up, I started to realize what was happening. And, and I'll tell you, even though it was painful at times, I didn't get it. I didn't grasp it as a child, which I'm thankful for. But as I grew up, I learned that there's a lot more to learn through sorrow than there is laughter. There really is. The world would do so good to learn this. 
It, it, it would do you better, it would do your soul better to go to a funeral more than a festival. That's what he's saying. That's strange. It's really strange. You know why it's really strange in our culture? It's because we live in a culture of death. We live in a culture of death. Euthanasia, assisted suicide, abortion, to name a few. Right? It, it's, it's, we're so used to seeing it in our face, on our screens, on the television. But not all that long ago, i got to tell you, most of these acts were outlawed and scorned by the general public. But the sad fact is, is that most people are numb to it. Not only are they numb to it, they, they tolerate it. And now it's, it's, even, it's even cool to like celebrate it. But listen, we need to wake up to this insanity. Like it's, it's, like, it's like people are just in some demonic haze where we think this is okay and this is normal. It's not okay and it's not normal. There's nothing okay or normal about any of it. We're just numb to it. Death is not the way it ought to be. Death is abnormal. It is not your friend. It's not your friend. I don't, I don't care how bad the pain is on your deathbed. It's not your friend. Now, if you're in Christ, okay, it is in, it's the next step into real life. I get it. It is. But if you're not, oh, to send someone to assisted suicide who's not in Christ is to send them to eternal punishment. It's not to be encouraged. It isn't right. It's not part of the circle of life. It's the end of it, unless you're in Christ. So my encouragement is grieve. When someone in your life dies, even if they're in Christ, grieve. I've had people say, well, don't, don't cry for them. They're in Christ. That's silly. Grieve. Cry. Lament. Right? Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the grave. He wept. He wept. Jesus could teach us a thing or two. I, I'm all for going and celebrating the life of the person, celebrating the God who triumphed over death, who rose from the grave. But you ought to weep when people die that you love, that you know. The, the Bible tells us that, that not only to weep, but then I think we could really learn here. I need to learn here. We need to learn here. You need to weep with those who weep. Uh, the world knows no such thing. We don't want to be around it. You're a buzzkill. Hey, when you're feeling a little better, let's get together. You know very quickly in moments of suffering who your friends are. Uh, I had the privilege of getting hit by a drunk driver and breaking 18 bones. You might think that's a weird privilege, but it was the thing that God used to bring me to himself through Christ. So I love my limp. But I'm going to tell you right now, I knew who my friend was when it was done. Now, outside of my family, right? My mom, my dad, they were there. I had one friend. The rest were gone. Because, you know, when you're 22 and you got 18 broken bones in your wheelchair, you're not that cool, right? But I had one buddy who came often. And we would play video games. And then he would just sit there and talk to me and ask me how I'm doing. And I'd tell him I'm not doing great. And he would sit there. And, and, and he, a dear friend of mine, right? Well, he learned to weep with those who weep, and he wasn't a Christian, and he's still not a Christian, and I pray for his soul often. But he learned that. The church needs to be at the cutting edge of this. When the world's laughing and amusing itself to death, at death, we need to show up, and we need to, to, to weep, and then give them hope, because we have the greatest hope. We have living hope, right? But how did we get here? 
Well, there's a, there's a British uh, sociologist, his name's Jeffrey Gore. Um, he wrote an essay back in the 1950s, and it was titled this, The Pornography of Death. Okay? The title is stunning, right? But he really gets at the center of, I think, the problem of our culture. He suggests this. He suggests that death has become the 20th century, to the 20th century, what sex was to the 19th century. And let me, let me explain. He says, even as the, promise of, uh, the, the prominence of sex broadened in conversation, in mainstream television, in what kids are allowed to see and know, death was pushed further out of our sight and out of our mind, right? So, so it was a time you never talked about sex. Death was a, a conversation around the table, right? Grandma died, and this is sad, and we need to work through this, and it's okay to cry, etc., etc., etc. Especially if you lived on a farm, it was a constant reality. You're, you're killing chickens, and now you're eating them, right? We've got to talk about these things. But sex was never talked about around the table, not like that. And he's saying that, that, that we pushed death out of the conversation, and we brought that to our dinner table. And here's what he says. This taboo on death is something we impose on our culture, wittingly or not. But the taboo also imposes something on us that we ought to recognize and take seriously. Ignoring our mortality distorts our view of reality and allows us to live as if death is someone else's problem. What the taboo does to us is deeper insight of Gore's essay, and he says, and the reason for the, the provocative title. By the way, if you don't get all that, because it's hard sometimes to grasp all these words as they're coming at you pretty quick, that's okay, because I think we're going we're gonna to keep layering that out. But when you suppress honest talk, by the way, about basic human like, experiences, uh, interest in them doesn't disappear. That's, that's, that's what he's saying. The interest itself is, is irrepressible. Like you, you can't shove it down. It keeps coming up. Reality keeps punching you in the face. I don't want to think about death. It's right there. And now it's, it's knocking at your door. It might be coming for you. It might be coming for someone very close to you and you can't escape it. And, and instead, instead of like, let's say, interest starts to bubble up the more you don't talk about things right? And so he's saying, we got to talk about this. And so here's how it gets perverted. With sex, what happens is, okay, if we don't talk about that, and it just goes into this insidious thing called pornography, right? People still do it even if they're not talking about it. And the more you talk about it, the more they might even be incited by it because we don't have God's mind on the subject, right? God has given sex as a gift, right? Between a man and a woman in the union of marriage to be enjoyed, right? But man perverts it. Well, when you don't talk about death, what you get is culture saying zombies. See how crazy it is? Well, they don't die. They just walk around. But it's the fascination is still there. Well, what if you don't talk about God? What do you get? You get superheroes. You get Marvel, right? And we just pervert these things because we're not filling our minds with truth, and we need truth. We need reality, right? We live in a world that, that has its feet firmly planted in midair and says everything's fine. Everything's not fine. And the more that you try to avoid it, the more it's going to continue just to come at you. And what Romans 1 says is you will suppress the truth. But here's the problem. It keeps bubbling up. And there will be one day you will stand before truth personified in the name of Jesus Christ. And you will not be able to say, yeah, but. Because every knee will bend, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord because that is truth.
There is such a thing as absolute truth. Our souls are wired for it. We need it. Oh, how foolish it is that we just see the world crumbling around us and we just say, everything's fine. I'm not saying that we should all be like gathering around like muskox with our heads pointed in saying, woe is me like Eeyore. But I am saying it's okay to look at it and recognize what's happening. Here's the question for you. Are you denying the fact that one day soon you will die? You. I'm pretty young. I've done funerals for a lot of young people. Are you ignoring it? See, see, no matter how much kale you eat, and if you like kale, great. I like it with bacon and garlic and onions. So I'm not, I'm not against kale. I love it. No matter how much you work out, no matter what you do, and I think you should work out. I think you should care for yourself. That's fine. But death is knocking at your door, and one day soon you'll answer it. James could not be more clear when he says your life is like a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Oh, this is a buzzkill. Came in for a little cheer me up. Um, hang in there. It might come. It might come. Depends how you look at the world and depends how you look at your life in Christ, whether it's going to cheer you up or not. It might be more depressing. But can I just tell you something? There's times where we need a sober reminder of the reality that we're in. Because it starts to make you think. And, and that's not a bad thing, although people try to escape that too. See, the fool sits in the funeral service or even in this church service and thinks how unbearably grim this whole subject is. I wanted to go to a happy church. By the way, I think we're one of the happiest churches. Um, and it longs for this, this whole sermon to be over so that I can go outside and I can feel the sunshine on my skin and I can get back to enjoying Miller Lite by the pool and, and maybe watch a comedy series and, and just kind of numb myself to the harsh realities and, and just say that everything's fine again. Ugh, this is, I don't like this. I got to go, oh, look at the time, right? And you might get up and jet. Don't. Stay in the seat because here's the deal. The wise person, what Solomon is saying is the wise person sits in the funeral service. He sits in this church service and he thinks, she thinks, they stare at the coffin and they realize one day soon that will be my turn. It'll be my turn. And they start to ponder things about their life and they start to say, when it's my turn, what will my life have been worth? Will they say, man, they always smelled like the greatest perfume? Or will they say, that person loved imperfectly for sure but you knew they had spent time with Jesus why because they were full of mercy they were full of grace and when they blew it and they blew it they were quick to, to ask for forgiveness they were quick to to run to the throne of grace and receive help in their time of need they sought to magnify Jesus in their life they sought to love the people that was in their life and they sought to have more people in their life that didn't know him so that they might have eternal life what will they say about you? What will they say about me? These are questions you should ask. It's questions you should ask. You don't just exist for yourself. That's such a problem within our culture. We think we are independent. But you're dependent upon God for every breath you get. And we're interdependent as a church, as a people. We need one another. I need the people that are in my life. You need the people that are in your life. 
You're, you're not an island on your own. So let, let's join Moses in Psalm 90.12 when he says this. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You see what he's saying? I know that life's a vapor. So, so help me to remind myself of that. Yes, by the way, all the stuff that Solomon said up to this point doesn't get thrown out the window. Yes, enjoy the meal, enjoy the drink, enjoy your life, enjoy your toil, because your days are few. Enjoy them, but don't make them ultimate. He's got one song, and he keeps singing it. I hope you're hearing it. He just keeps saying it in a different way. See, the, the, death has the power to teach us things about mercy, about grace, about love, about joy that you and I can't learn from a party. We can't, right? Like, only someone who knows how to weep well will actually laugh deeply. It's, it's a fact. Not only that, but if you learn to weep deeply, you'll learn to love deeply. Because you're feeling. You're feeling. You're, you're recognizing the reality that you're in. And, and we got to slow down and remind ourselves of truth, which is why I continually lay out before you, you got to be in the Word. Not so that God will love you, not so that Jesus will love you, but because He does. Because He does. And how He most prevalently reveals Himself is through His Word by His Spirit as we come to it and receive. And we say, Lord, I, I need to see from you today. I need to hear from you. Help me. So He continues. Look at verses 5 and 6. It is better for a man to hear a rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of the thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. What's he saying? Well, essentially, is that sorrow is better than laughter. Right? The, the praise of fools don't accomplish much, <laughs> except to inflate your ego which doesn't accomplish much, doesn't help you probably at all. Uh, you, the question is, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here. Like I said, each one of these could be a sermon in itself, but do you invite correction into your life from people that you trust and people that you know are for you? Do you know what I mean? Like, do you invite them in or do you only surround yourself with people who will agree with you? Like some fool's parade, right? And, and if somebody were to ever say anything to you that might feel a little bit like a jab, do they just get discarded out of your life? That's a question, right? Because here's the deal. The world has, has really worked hard to push any wisdom out of their ears, which means they push people out of their life. And they only surround themselves with the people on TikTok that do the little love-like thing. I don't even know if you do that on a TikTok or a TikTac or whatever it is, right? But like they comment on it. They high-five you. They do something in the virtual world that's a pixelated little high-five. And then you get this little boost and you feel better about yourself. And you're like, well, gosh darn it, people like me. Well, maybe not. But you've surrounded yourself with people and you've created a scenario where they don't actually know you and you like it. But if they were to spend some time with you, they would smell like gym socks, right? And you would, after a while, probably have something to maybe help them grow and change. But they don't want to hear that, so they never let you close. They keep everybody at an arm's distance. Well, Proverbs 17.10 says this. Proverbs 17.10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Are you a man or a woman of understanding or are you a fool? 
That's a good question. You should think about that. You should ask. You might want to ask the people closest to you in your life and then give them permission to answer and not get mad if they say something you didn't want to hear. If you'll listen, if you'll listen, you'll grow. It doesn't mean it's always true, by the way. There are people who say things to you that, that may actually have been meant to actually hurt you, not help you. But that doesn't mean you still can't learn. It still doesn't mean you can't learn. Uh, I think it was Spurgeon who said, turn your, your critics into coaches. Right? He, there's got to be something here I can learn. Right? And so if you'll receive that medicine, my guess is you'll, you'll grow. But here's the deal. You trust the Lord with your reputation. He will judge perfectly one day. Because there may be people saying things about you that might not be true. Like, for instance, Jesus was perfect, is perfect, and they slandered him. They said he was a glutton. They said he was a drunkard. They said all sorts of things. They said he had a demon, none of which were true. So his reputation with some people was not good. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, which was his father, and he kept living his life. If you're always worried about what everyone else is thinking about you, you're never thinking about what God is thinking about you in Christ. And so you are going to be a slave to everyone around you and their opinion. If they're applauding you, you'll be like, hey, I'm doing good today. If they say something that actually was meant to be helpful and it crushes you, it means that you worry way too much what someone thinks of you. And that, my friend, is slavery. It's slavery. We should all get tattoos, ready? It says, audience of one on our forehead. We'll get it on backwards, so when we look in the mirror, it'll look right, right? But we'll get it with invisible ink, and we'll get black light, so we only see it in the morning. What do you think? But, okay, that seems silly. You don't want to do that? Okay, but get it tattooed in your eyeballs that no one else can see, but when you think in the morning, you think about that. Because if we did, then we would be so much less worried about ourselves, and that would help us to be freed up to love the people around us and not love their opinions more than we love them. By the way, in case you're wondering, we all need to grow. None of you have arrived. I've not arrived. You've not arrived. And Christ is not done with us until the day he returns or until the day we, we shed this mortal coil and we see him in full face to face. So all of us ought to be seeking to grow. All right, he continues, verses 7 through 10. Essentially, patience is better than pride. Listen up. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of the thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become anger, angry, for the anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Hmm. That's a, that last sentence, man. Well, here the preacher's encouraging us to be patient in this mysterious, enigmatic world, right? Um, not proud. Not thinking you know what's best, right? Don't look at one season of your life and think, whether it's good or it's difficult, that this is the totality of your life. It's a, it's a season. It's a moment. Be patient. Play the long game. So many people want to hit the eject button in a season of life, and that's when they ruin their name. Instead of embracing what the Lord has allowed into your life, by the way, to teach you, to grow you, to be more like him. We say, I don't want that, and we, 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 we get impatient with him. 
You need to look at your life in the scope of eternity. Even if you live 100 years, it's, it's a grain of sand on all the beaches of every place in, on the earth. This is a grain of sand. So even if your life was mega suffering for 80 years, it's, it's a blip in the scale of eternity. We need that kind of thinking because when suffering comes, you better be reminded you have a hope that's far beyond this momentary life, right? And, and that's exactly what's happening. Noticing verse 8, that nostalgia is, is a joy killer, right? Why? Because it's, <laughs> oh man, people need to listen up to this today, right? You, you'll see why, right? You might already know why. Because here's the deal. Nostalgia is always living in the past instead of trusting God in the present and with the future, the church needs to hear this, right? Depending on who you spend time with, um, this is probably in your ears a lot right now, right? Like, for instance, things aren't like they used to be. Well, that's true. It's almost always true. But in some sense, it, it is. Why is the world getting so bad, violent crimes on the rise? It is. But in some places, it's actually better. I'm glad I didn't have to bring my children up in the world these days. Oh my goodness. Yeah, well, it's probably better than when Genghis Kong was attacking some folks, right? Like, it's all about perspective. It's, he says it's, it's not from wisdom you say these things. If you say these things, not, that's not coming from wisdom, right? So many, specifically in the American church, need to hear this warning because instead of longing for the yesteryears to return, we should look to the future while working in the present. It may get worse. It may. But is God still on the throne, sovereignly ruling and reigning and doing good to his people and saving? Yes. Yes. I was so amazed, although I probably shouldn't have been, when we said that we were seeking to plant a church in the middle, I mean, almost at the, the beginning of the pandemic, people like wanted me to have a psych evaluation. I mean, at some level. They didn't say that, but they thought that. I could tell by their tone and by their conversation with me. And I just thought, have you forgot? Have you forgot? Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That means we can storm the gates of hell and they don't win. You think a pandemic has God wringing his hands about what he's going to do in the world? No. No, it had to come through his hand, and he has a great plan in it to bring about greatness and glory to his name. His people should have been on the front line saying, if it were to take me, not foolishly, but if it were to take me, then that's okay because to die is gain, but I'm going to labor now. Now, I didn't wake up one morning and get there, but through much prayer and much encouragement from my wife, when she looked me in the eye and said, it's a great time to plant a church because God's work go go oh it shot courage in my spine and so we went and people were like you're crazy we might be we might be but you gotta be a little crazy sometimes right but if you're really understanding the sovereignty of God you can't be crazy you can just trust him and know he's got you and no matter what even if it fell flat doesn't mean it's a loss in the kingdom because he will work through broken failure too so we can trust him. If we can trust him with our salvation, we can certainly trust him with that little baby step. You can just do it. Why? Because you've got a good God. And, and so 
And by the way, here's the thing. When we think about the good old days, right? The good old days. God is faithful in every season, including seasons of suffering. He's good in every season. We are one day closer to Jesus' return every day that you wake up. And so what that means is Romans 13, 11 says, is salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Right? No matter how good the good old days were, they're never going to be the shalom our heart longs for. That day ain't coming until Jesus returns or you go to be with him. When he makes all things new. No matter how good they were, right? Um, and remember, comfort, comfort never brings about Christ-likeness as much as suffering. It just doesn't, right? Sometimes the medicine tastes bad going down, but it brings the healing your soul needs. And, and so... I think the preacher would add, if you think you're living in a world where things are getting worse all the time, and they might be, I think Solomon would add this, then cheer up, because at least before long, you're going to be dead. (laughs) That's what he's saying. If you're paying attention, it's what he's saying. Just hang on. You're going to die soon. I've said that to somebody. At the, you might be like, oh, I hope he never comes to my deathbed then. They were dying. And, and it, I mean, apart from an absolute divine miracle, they were dying. Hospice knew it. Everybody knew it. And I just, and I had a great friendship with the person. And I just said, hey, hang in there. You're going to die soon. And they laughed. They laughed. And they said, that is the strangest thing you probably could have said. But it was the most comforting thing in the moment. I don't say that to everybody, so if you're like, well, if I'm sick, don't see me. Um, (laughs) I won't say it to you probably. But if it fits, I will. I will. I will. I knew this man was going to see the Lord. I just hang in there, but it's almost over. All the suffering is almost over. And it was. It was later that evening he would die. And then I wept because I love the man. We have to be a biblically serious people. The world can't do more trite. We can't be a church that's about gimmicks. We must be a gospel serious people. We're serious about the gospel because life and death hangs in the balance. It's what Solomon's saying. It's what he's communicating. Let's look at the last couple verses. Verses 11 through 13, he says, Wisdom is better than wealth. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see under the sun, or see the sun, I'm sorry. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is the wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Listen to this. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? (laughs) Never see that on a placard. (laughs) Not not putting that on the old coffee mug. Have you ever thought that things are the way that God wants them to be in this moment for his glory? On a global scale, in the universe, bring it down to your life. It's a hard pill to swallow. 
Read the book of Job. We do not have the ability to overrule almighty God of the universe. We don't have the ability. Who? Think about it. Think about what he said. I'm going to read it again. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Answer, no one. Nobody. Not a soul. Not you. No matter how hard you try, you can't do it. You're not sovereign. You can't even clean your room most of the days. How are you going to run the universe? Right? I, can't, I can't even manage my yard half the time. I'm trying to keep up. My foundation's got a little crack here. I've got to fix that. All these little things. I can't manage my house great. The universe? But, oh, I think I know better in these moments. No, you don't. Think about it. Each of us have something in our life that if we could change it right now and hit the easy button, we would. It happens to all of us. I'm not even saying that's bad. But here's the deal. What we struggle with is our limitations. We're limited. He's limitless. Right? We're limited, though. We suffer breakdown in families. Oh, people we love just someday, they just don't, they don't love us back. And, and all the brokenness that happens in that moment crushes your heart. Family relationships are strained. Our, our physical bodies start to break down to the point that you, you weep at the thought that you can't do the simple task you used to be able to do. And it's all breaking down around you. And you feel like if I could change this, I would. And he says, who can make straight what God has made crooked. He's not saying God did something evil here. God does no evil. But there are times where God will put a roadblock up in your life to get you where he needs you to be in that moment. Oh, that's why I embraced the 18 broken bones from my car wreck. Oh, I'd like to straighten out my legs someday. But who can do it? Well, some, there will be one day. I'll get a glorified body. Till then, I can see now. Not everybody gets that though. And what I mean by not everybody gets that, there are seasons of suffering. You'll never understand why that happened, but God had a plan in it. Here's the big deal. And if you can embrace this, you'll actually enjoy your life. Ready? It's not about you. Well, I certainly don't hear that at the other church. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ and Christ alone. And he has a plan of redemption in this world. And sometimes that means suffering comes into the broken places and he brings beauty from ashes. Will you receive it? Or will you only receive from his hand what you think is wise? Well, it's not God you worship. It's your tiny brain. Listen, I don't say these things to hurt you. I'm trying to... I'm asking God to wake you up to the lies you believe. I believe. We believe. Why? Because truth sets you free. And I want you to be free. I want you to be free. I want you to be free to love. Oh, gosh, we need to be free to love. We struggle with limitations. Sooner or later in life, um, something's going to happen in your life. You're going to wish that God had a different outcome for it. It's going to happen if you live long enough. But what is crooked cannot be made straight. We can't change what God has done until God wants to change it. That's the point. You just can't. You can try to escape it. It won't work. We don't have the power to edit his plan. And if we understood it, we wouldn't try. We wouldn't try. 
All right, almost done. However, listen, instead of letting that drive you to despair, let it drive you to the throne of grace. Where the sovereign God of the the universe rules and he gives us hope through the trial. That you might be able to endure it and one day be able to see it as joy because it was the redemption your heart needed. And I don't just mean in salvation. I mean, there's a part of your heart that just wasn't gladly and joyfully submitted to King Jesus and he is ripping your little white knuckles off of that idol and he's opening up your hand to receive him. This is the God we worship. Make no mistake about it, we do suffer the frustrations of life in this shattered world. But the Bible says that we suffer these things by the will of God who is planning to set us free from all futility and who is working all things to our ultimate good for those who are love, love him and are called according to his purposes. Now, I was going to read Romans 8, 18 through 30. But I'll tell you what, I trust that anyone who's paying attention and wants will do much better to take the time to read it today. So my encouragement to you is today, if you want, be an overachiever. Read the greatest chapter in all the Bible. I think it's Romans 8. But what I really want you to devote your time to is Romans 8, 18 through the end of the chapter. Think about it. Muse it over. Instead of just binging another show, read this and binge it later right? But take some time and get away. Stop the noise. Think about your life and read that text. And what you're going to find out, spoiler alert, ready? Jesus, this is point two. And you're like, oh my goodness, how long is this going to go? We're just going to land the plane on point two. (laughs) Point two is, this is it, ready? Jesus will make all things better in the end. (laughs) He will. He will. How do we know? Because we can trust him and his word says. He will press out every tear that's in your eye. And he'll wipe them all away. This earth is groaning for redemption. Is what you're going to read in Romans 8. But, but can I just tell you that the God who rules over all things. He is he's going to make all things new. And, 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 and so here's the thing. If Jesus died so that you don't have to pay for anything in your past, and he has risen to be your living Savior, then essentially what can death do to you? Nothing. Except bring you into a greater sense of reality and truth when you see him face to face. That's why Paul can say to die is gain. It's all about gain for the Christian. The day of your death is your best day if you're in Christ. And you have an eternity to enjoy it. So, Here's the gentle encouragement to your church. Get your head in the clouds. You know what I mean by that? Like, get your eyes off your navel and off your circumstances. Get them on Christ. Seek to have a vision of God that comes from him, from his word, from the truth, where the new heaven, the new earth, and Jesus will make all things new. And that's a world where there's worship, where there's wonder, and there's never-ending love of God for those who are in Christ. That's your future. No matter what suffering comes in this momentary moment, you can trust him. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons 
Find out more information about For the City or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.